it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Now we're heading into the 80s, the 80s, the 80s, the 80s. This is the One Sensational Shot Network and you're entering the electronic labyrinth with Luke Littleboy and me, Fletcher Walton. Thanks for joining us for the second part of our conversation on the marvellous studio career of Hollywood subversive Joe Dante. Shall we crack on? The deconstruction of the very medium itself, you could say it's a, a sort of sophomoric level, it's a very visceral thing, but Gremlins 2, when the Gremlins literally stopped the film, I hadn't seen anything like that before, I didn't know that films could do that. The Gremlins stopped the film, this is the theatrical cut, the cut that was shown on UK televisions throughout the 90s. The Gremlins are in the projection booth, messing around with the canisters, the projectionist comes downstairs to Paul Bartell's theatre owner. There's uh, complaining patrons. Paul Bartell goes into the audience, finds, of all people, Hulk Hogan, who threatens the Gremlins, and they start behaving themselves. It was only last year, so I'd been watching Gremlins 2 for maybe literally 25 years before I saw the video cut, which has a, an entirely different scene. It replaces the chaos in the theatre with the gremlins channel surfing because it's on video the gremlins are channel surfing and come across a john wayne weston and he repels them and shoots them dead i've never seen that one the yeah the exactly i hadn't either it'd been we're talking about 25 years before i got to see it just about <laughs> Hold it. Get the hell off my spread. Now, go on back to your own movie. Hey, I bet that was a... Say, do you think that... Hey, could that have been a... Kremlin? Varmints on my ranch, and you folks don't need them in your TV sets. Let's start that movie up again. I hope that today's children get the opportunity to see the anarchy in Joe Dante's work as we did when we were kids. You know, I won't um, undersell how wacky children's programming is. I still see stuff and think. Wow, that's what they're making for seven-year-olds. That's awesome. That's really mm. that's pretty fun. But um, yeah, to see that the Grem to see how in Gremlins two the Gremlins stop the film itself. Mm. Uh, it's sensational. Um, and they said, I know Warner Brothers execs with the second Gremlins were 
saying you you can't make fun of the merchandise <laughs> they do like they're just like, making fun of the merchandise because they wanted i think with gremlins 2 they were trying to go to lots of different directors and writers over the years and it yeah. wasn't until no one could actually make it make a script work did they go back to joe dante like you say coming off the burbs uh gave him that license to well mm. just do whatever you want just make sure it's done by this particular date so <laughs> yeah. i think he with, with that i think he probably just rubbed his hands together and said right i'll get to work Oh, it's it. It swiftly descends into lunacy because in the first Gremlins, it's a long time before the Gremlins begin wreak havoc. Yeah, not just that, but it's a long time into the film before they break the fourth wall. But once they do, there's a jazz club Gremlin sitting with a cigarette and a beret, a Gremlin with a sock puppet trying to lighten his mood and entertain him. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, they're all wearing clothing, watching Snow White, singing along to mm. it. You know, but then Gremlins 2 amplifies that astonishingly. It becomes a living cartoon. You go to it, flashes to a shot where now they're all wearing construction gear, hard hats, dressed like mm. teamsters. The, the disrespect it shows, I love that. And, and then just the, the ingenuity as well to think we've seen Gremlins already. What do we do with the next one? All right, um, a Gremlin made out of electricity. Yeah, 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 yeah. A, sp- yeah. a spider Gremlin. A transvestite, mm. no, sorry, a transsexual gremlin, which then yeah. at the end marries Robert Picardo. What the fuck? <laughs> um, and, and that might the, the, the triumph of the second one, that the, the the most transcendent moment might be when they perform a, a Broadway number that they kind of reveal through hexagonal tiling, reveal a giant mosaic of the female gremlin again out of nowhere. It doesn't have mm. to make any sense. It's just, all right, this is what the gremlins do now. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's, it's riffing and, and ha- having ideas and just um, having fun sketches. Stuff's too austere these days. We, Joe Dante's too fun for the era in which we live. Although there's life to those Marvel films, um, a lot of it seems to be about sacrifice um, and how life is something of a dirge mm. with uh, well, kind probably of pit, just how pit stops of misery. Well, yeah, but, it, but it's been like that for a while. And we always point back to how um, Spider-Man had that Joe Dante style zest. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, did, yeah. the first couple. And then... Well, that, that's because they were making them just before 9-11. My, my, my theory is post 9-11, this is when it changed. That's what, Post 9-11 is when every film has a desolate... Um, uh, post-apocalyptic landscape by the end of it because the whole city has been bombed uh, yeah and like there's so many films where, where that is has been the case including a lot of marvels including the batman v superman and man of steel and all that that, that was, I, i'm so sick of seeing the cities bombed because yeah we have seen it to the point where when the independence day sequel finally came out no no, no one even noticed <laughs> yes yeah, it, these modern pictures are too committed to to duty and service and the pain and degradation on a man or a woman's soul that it, it that is required to 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 continue to save people and, and exist with this within this environment and a lot of it comes from chris nolan's batman films being popular uh, critically and commercially successful and then most other producers identifying that and as we joke about saying yeah gritty gritty that's what we want gritty reboot Gritty reboot of Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Gritty reboot of fucking Hungry Hungry Hippos. It just goes on, throwing grit <laughs> yeah, and gravel I mean, at I mean, the they screen. They even did it with 
they even did it with uh, The Rock's recent film Rampage, which I would I suppose it wasn't entirely <laughs> yeah. gritty, but it was a realistic look. And now that was based on an old Mega Drive and SNES game. And I wonder if the source material even predates that game, but that's when mm. I was familiar with I know with it Rampage. from Atari Lynx, that's how old it is, yeah. Right, right, okay. And that was a 50s B-movie pastiche of a big Godzilla and big Wolfman blowing up buildings but it was all cartoony and fun because it was a throwback bubblegum throwback kind of thing and then to see the rampage film with the rock and it looks okay it is out of this world don't get me wrong um but it is by all you know all intents and purposes it's supposed to look halfway believable and uh you know a bit the, the stakes are high and, and that kind of thing so yeah you're right you're right I feel like um I feel like this is a good conversation and I and the joy that I had over the weekend watching these Joe Dante pictures that the warmth it brought to my heart is is was palpable and you don't get that a lot these days but I, I do I do wonder should we go back to the burbs a bit I feel like we've gone all around the houses did you did you want to talk any more about some elements of the burbs we haven't even spoken about what the real MacGuffin is which is the fact that they're the neighbor Walter with the little dog disappears and and that's uh, so suddenly that all the men on the street with tom hanks band together to try and track him down and figure out what the hell is going on what's interesting is there's a another double reveal with the film so at one point it seems that all of their paranoia is unfounded and essentially what they've done is ruin the lives ruin the lives of a hard-working but insular immigrant family Mm. Because remember as well, Rumsfeld refers to him as the foreigners a couple of times. The foreigners were up making all that racket. Yeah, and then and, it, the, and, and the then it turns out, oh no, so, hold on, they <laughs> they were fucking murderers, uh, and yeah. all of all the scripts have had. I think the film had had to choose one of four endings, and in three of those, it was revealed that the Klopex were murderers, and in a couple of them, they got away with it, and in the one that made it to screen, they didn't. Uh, and I'm tr- I think it is quite like Dante to give us a setup and tell us that maybe these people are strange, take it away from us and say, no, no, they were fine. And then, no, actually, there's, a, there's another level of it to subvert that even more. What hit you about the burbs? Because I, d- I don't know how, how much to go into the plot. So what, what hit you about it? Well, I like the fact that it's um, that they kind of hit on every trope of the suburbs that there is, you know, from the fact that you don't even know what job he has. (laughs) He's just bored out of his mind. Um, Carrie Fisher, I suppose if there's any criticism at all, Carrie Fisher's character doesn't necessarily have a lot to to do, but kind of be the slightly nagging housewife. But but, but nevertheless, she she plays the role with great aplomb. And... um, so it, it's got i mean at the end of the day maybe that's a trope of the burbs anyway that, that's a trope of the suburbs so may, maybe that's there um at one point the, the, they're talking to Corey felbin's character about this urban legend of some some murderers from from years ago and i i remember that okay i was in a village it wasn't the suburbs but there was there was always an urban legend i could take you to the woods where um where some very funny stuff allegedly happened once and I could take you to the house which is definitely supposed to be haunted and I could even point to you the room which is supposed to be haunted uh, by the ghost and and, and Mm. I'm familiar with a lot of those uh, those kind of um, urban legends and that so it's uh, all in here you've got the the funny like you say the the funny neighbours they're the the mysterious neighbours that that help to drive the plot because it's that Tom Waits what's he building in there you know yeah. that kind of <laughs> yeah. that that yeah. notion of what's he building in there um so that's there and and we were talking about the goldsmith soundtrack with the 
the wonderful um, 50s B-movie feel as well. There's definitely some kind of theremin in there, at least a synthesized theremin. So, um, hmm. so, so, so yeah, the, the film plays with all of those um, tropes of what the suburbs are about. Uh, the, the paranoia that goes on there, the curtain twitching, but yeah. also has a whole third act, which is pretty much like a Looney Tunes cartoon of people falling off of roofs, uh, getting blown up in buildings. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, the double reveal was interesting to me because Tom Hanks does say, we're the monsters. You know, we're, we're the ones, these people should fear us because we're the ones who, who are blowing up their house. No wonder they're insular, you know? Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, you're right. There's the, there's the double reveal at the end, which, which really threw which to me was just like a big wink at the camera anyway. So that, that was great fun. That was really good fun. I think it can do both and still be successful. Um, mm. Another thing is that it's a comedy with a finale, something that's been sorely lacking for a number of years, we point to the Judd Apatow produced pictures, which so often don't have a good finale, that when one comes along with a terrific one, like Five Year Engagement, it, it, it's, um, it's ambrosia, it's life, because we're, we're so starving for it. And The Burbs is a picture that builds, that the pacing's perfect. There's only about 94, 95 minutes of screen time excising mm. the credits at the beginning and the end. Uh, so the plot takes place over almost 90 minutes and the pacing is perfect and too many modern pictures really don't have anything to build to. But The mm. Burbs definitely has something fantastic to build to and that's where Joe Dante reveals himself as uh, not a director of comedies but a, a great director of action and action-oriented sequences. I watched again the moment, well, the moment the house blows... Uh, the lightning rod thunders down into the cop car and the, the, mm. a, a perfect tableau of a number of characters, including Corey Feldman's Ricky, um, seven or eight of them in tableau as it doing, doing, and then uh, mm. Wendy Charles saying, there's something moving in there. Da -na 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 -na. Mm. And that's the thing. By the end of the picture, Tom Hanks' character is a Gary Cooper character. He's the one good sheriff in the bad town. Hey, Peterson, where are you going? Just starting to get good. Going away for a while, Ricky. Wish to keep an eye on the neighborhood for me. You betcha, Mr. Peterson. No problem. Yeah, and that's that's perfect too. Um, yeah, so I I don't quite know how I feel about how all of their paranoias and odd prejudices were vindicated but it doesn't mean that they themselves weren't idiosyncratic eccentrics they're all stunningly bored and yeah. and unhappy to an extent as well um that i mean it doesn't take much for them to duck out of well this is the thing that i talk about but for them to duck out of their humdrum lives and find a project and i think this is this is the male condition and you can say it doesn't matter your culture or your race. Men seem to like a project. And that's why mm. you'll have lads plotting a terror act or running off to join ISIS because blokes are never happier than when they can find two or three... No, really, than when, than when they can find two or three other like-minded individuals and plot towards yeah. something. Now, usually, hopefully, it's something you know, benign, like a podcast or a physical activity like a football team. Or, or band or whatever yeah yeah but blokes love to do that and you see it how rumsfield uh arms dealer clearly um 
longing for his days in the military. And as you said, at a moment's notice can go back to those tropes. In Southeast Asia, we'd call this kind of thing bad karma. And the run to water, men, as you said. And bringing out the scope and he's got the rifle and art's the same. The only real mention of his wife is at the breakfast table. And he says, my wife and her mother for a week. I'm eating here. I'd rather chew broken glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're just... Uh, Ray seems to have... a Ray and Rumsfeld have relatively healthy relationships with their partners, but they're all... All three of them are men that are bored as fuck within suburbia and have a, mm. a, a strong, uh, latent but innate desire to plot together and have a thing to do. Raise mm. the... I mean, raise the hesitant to come to, to... to join the group with that, but... I mean, that's why I think that's part of the reason why we we see um, the, the dream sequences, which are perfectly done. And uh, another point where... Oh, in, um, God, they're fantastic. This goes back to the way that Luke and I chat about growing up and cut versions and uh, the old days of censored on TV because the version that I saw always had the scene from Race with the Devil, the Peter Fonda picture, and the shot from Texas Chainsaw, but never had Regan from The Exorcist in between those two when she spits mm. up on Jason Miller. So I remember seeing that for the first time. I don't know, like, I think there was a summer where I watched the Burbs either once a week, every week for six weeks, or <laughs> for the first week of the summer, once a day, every day, for seven, eight, or nine days. Wow. So I, I saw it when I was 10 or 11. I watched it a lot. We had it on both beta and VHS, but re wow. recorded off the telly, obviously. Dedication. And so. I, and I'd, I'd never seen the, the Regan from The Exorcist bit that he's watching on television before that dream sequence. And that dream mm. sequence is superb. But what I'm saying is everything's percolating in his mind. And I think it's um, suggesting uh, uh, a male desire to, to act, to, to have a project. I mean, there's, a, there's yeah. a discussion of that as well when he talks about this is such an, an obvious cliche trope. But when he says, I've got some new tools, do I show you the new tools? Yeah, check out the tools. Yeah. That's a, a, a male suburban sitcom thing, isn't it? Whoa. Those, those I think Art even, Art even says, uh, are you going to build anything with those? Yeah, goes, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll build something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, at, at the end, when he's finally confessing to, to his neighbor, he says, uh, I'll help you rebuild the house. Yeah. I've, got, I've got some tools. <laughs> I've got some great tools. <laughs> men, men, and I'm not saying that women don't need projects, but what I can tell you for certain, having been a man for some time, most of my life, in fact, is that men need projects. And in the picture, we've got three, three fellas desperate for action and then a couple of wives that uh, most of the... And uh, I don't think that they're nagging. It's more like, oh, f f here go the boys again. Because they are behaving yeah. childishly. And yeah. as they say, they say, I'm sh Wendy Shell says, I'm sure that we can learn more about them in five minutes of conversation and chat than you can in a month of snooping around. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. I don't know to what extent that's proven true in the film, but it does generate one of the best comedy sequences of the 80s, the sardine... <laughs> which me and Dave, you know Dave Ablett, me and Dave Ablett yeah. to this day still say that to one another when we mean to suggest that someone has either behaved oddly or we see someone a bit unusual in the street. You have to give it a sardine. And the um, watching it again, the sound design applied to that sequence because it's the very specific noise of a pretzel upon which a sardine is placed. So you need the squelch of the sardine removed from the tin, put onto the pretzel. Hanks looks to Carrie Fisher. She gives the kind of... Go Nod on. of you should eat yeah. this. Yeah. Puts it yeah. in his mouth and that very slow chew. 
Yeah. Um, when the neighbours, when the wonderful. odd neighbours are trying to entertain, we should say, yeah. uh, to, just yeah. to set the scene. But the, 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 they do, they don't learn too much. But it, obviously, it just set from a plot point of view, it sets us off for the next part because uh, yeah. is it the dog that comes out the um, Landry, uh, closet, yeah. and then that's when he finds another wig. Which he he is convinced must be the neighbor's wig because he he'd already posted the other one through the letterbox. It's a whole thing, guys. If you haven't, we're seen making it, it do, sound do more complicated that, but... than it is. It's it's yeah. it's actually quite linear. But yeah. in recalling it, it yeah, it's, it's certainly one of those comedy pictures where you remember one scene and then immediately you remember the preceding scene, the subsequent scene, and you you want to kind of relive all of them. I think the yeah. um, rounding back to the performances, I think it's cast perfectly. Rick De Common is an overlooked comic actor i discovered him through the burbs everybody knows him from groundhog day as the guy who says yeah just put those anywhere mm. and he's in he has bit parts in a couple of john mctiernan pictures it, you know if it was if this film were made today that role would be a dan fogler role mm. and it would be a catapult to stardom because i think de common's great the way he um breezes into the peterson's uh, kitchen and devours. So not only is do we see that he's given a second plate of breakfast, having arrived unannounced, but then moves to their refrigerator, removes from it what looks like meatloaf, a fucking pineapple, goes yeah. back to the breakfast table. He consumes the whole time. And yet he's not like a big, fat, bumbling, fat guy stereotype. It's more that he's a real obnoxious bastard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's perfectly yeah. cast. Uh, Bruce Dern is great the first time that he worked with Dante. Now, he's in the hole as well, but he also did a voice on Small Soldiers. Brother Theodore is an interesting casting pick. As I understand it, um, he was an unusual performance artist in the 70s. He'd do kind of funny monologues. Started in the 50s and then got picked up by someone like Carson in the 70s. Courtney Gaines as the young Klopek with the neck beard constantly mm, scratching yeah, yeah. Uh, it's astonishing and like that bloke is a relatively normal looking fella he's in back to the future and he's in memphis bell but in the burbs uh, that's a perfect halloween costume and he's at the center of the film's best horror sequence 30 minutes in we watch the Clopex take their rubbish out and goldsmith and dante in particular cultivate a sequence of great horror horror that we cannot tear our eyes away from we can scarcely believe what we're watching See the news report now. They were a quiet family, kept pretty much to themselves. No one would have ever suspected them of foul play. I've never seen that. I've never seen anybody drive their garbage down to the street and bang the hell out of it with a stick. I've never seen that. Henry Gibson, he was in Inner Space as well. Do you remember he plays Jack Putter's supervisor at the Safeway? And then he's in Gremlins 2 as a bloke that clamp fires for no particular reason. But Henry yeah. Gibson's wonderful. Um, yeah, and a, a, another example where uh, when you're a kid and you see Blues Brothers and Star Wars and the Burbs and you think, Carrie Fisher, whoever she is, she must be the <laughs> coolest actress in the world. She's in all my yeah. favourite films. Henry Gibson's in Blues Brothers and the Burbs. He must be getting 10 million a picture. He's this fantastic superstar that's in everything that's good. And mm. it's the same with De Common as well, because you see him in cameos and you realise, oh no, he's only in eight films, but it just so happens that they're eight really good films that you love when you're 13 years old. What a picture. I think all of his films uh, start off as one thing and, and will often turn to something else. I, I was reading an interview where he talked about The Howling 
which is a werewolf picture. But of course, back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was slasher pictures that were doing all the money. So hmm. the trailer didn't focus on werewolves at all. Um, you, you thought you were going to watch a slasher film. The film opens, of course, with a stalker and, and, and all of that kind of thing. But then it turns into this mad werewolf film. Yeah. Gremlins, people probably saw that poster with the, the cute hand coming out of the box. Steven Spielberg's name is on, on the marquee. And I know he's spoken about, he thought a lot of parents took their kids to go and see E.T. 2. <laughs> only yeah. to be absolutely horrified that the, 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 the gremlins halfway through are, are snotting on people and and shooting people, attacking people with chainsaws. Um, Lex, France, it was it, a, it's superb. Francis it was Lee a, McCain in the kitchen putting the gremlin in the blender. That's and, it. And, 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 and that moment... Microwave oven. Oh. That moment, Lex... So this, this must be saying something. That yeah. Lex was... This was her first viewing of the of Gremlins, and she couldn't believe it. She yeah. she she was aghast. She was like, "Oh my god, they actually did that!" You you saw the the Gremlin blow up in the microwave and the one go in the blender, and she 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 could not believe it. She was astounded. Does yeah, that it, tell it, us that new films are ten times more dull? I don't know. Possibly. It's reminiscent of pre Hayes Code Hollywood was fantastic and invisible man with claude rains has a number of brutal sequences now they may not be gory by today's standards but for instance for bants he derails a fucking train and cackles away and this is the lead this is someone that we're ostensibly meant to sympathize with somewhat although he's descended into madness and it's the same with gremlins you know under the radar somewhat joe dante's given this picture and it's so its brutality and violence is such that it is part of a movement that generates a new rating with that and Temple of Doom necessitated mm. the PG-13. I never remember exactly what the first one was. I think it was the Flamingo Kid, but mm. that's release was delayed. And so the actual first release, PG-13, was some other thing that I've forgotten about for the moment. And mm. But it will come to me later. Yeah, this is what I mean. It's, it's a bunch of counterculturalists. From who grew up in the 60s and into the very dark, cynical 70s, let loose with a budget. And this is what they've got to say. And we haven't even got to... I think some of the messages about Orientalism in Gremlins are fairly complex. Because mm. at its heart, it's about uh, a s small town America utterly destroyed and subverted by an Eastern influence. There's more said about commercialism. So, so you're, not, um, you're not ready for this yet. You know, come back yeah. when you're ready yeah. for this. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not for sale. He says, yeah. He yeah. says, uh, oh, this is the guy I bought it off, honey, when, 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 um, when they're toward the end of the picture. And uh, he says, ah, oh, purchased or, or, or bought. That's an interesting choice of words. You know, you didn't buy it. You, you wanted to buy it. It wasn't for sale. You took it. And you're yeah. not ready so for it. That's actually a point about American imperialism. And it's, re it's iterated in the second one. Daniel Clamp is uh, intent on purchasing and, if necessary, demolishing the Chinatown residence in which Kay Luke is. Mm. Um, and, he, and he does, and he, he takes it over and builds it again, and everything to him is a commercial opportunity. I see it now. Suckers on its hands, staring out of car windows across America. So, and and I, I think it's amazing that they fucking elected that guy, you know. I've always said this. Since Trump came up, I thought, what, 2016, 2017, our current era... Is so jaded that we don't even have our own baddies. 
We're just yeah. doing retro baddies from the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> We've got John Glover as the fucking president of the United States of America. Yeah. But yeah, you're right about... Um, you're right about K. Luke saying you're not ready for this. And Gremlins has a nice uh, anti-capitalist streak because it updates the Potter character from It's a Wonderful Life into Mrs. Deagle. who does, is yeah. constantly threatening to murder the dog. And then yeah. again, it goes all the way. You see her on the on the stairlift and she flies yep. out of the fucking house. Yeah, and that's yeah, that. yeah. There, there's no, yeah, as, as, far as, I rem- yeah, as far as I remember, there's no um, insert of her waking up in a snowdrift. There's she's not. She's fucking no, dead. She's, she's <laughs> dead. The gremlins killed her. Yeah. yeah. Um, Love it. <laughs> but it is interesting. Like I said, there's a couple of examples where you start off with one kind of movie and, and then it ends up as another. They yeah. all do that right the way through to um, Looney Tunes back in action even. That's where, by the end of that film... Uh, they they call cut and then suddenly Brendan Fraser the actor comes out because Brendan Fraser in the film is his stunt double like it, it really is like this big oh, me- yeah. meta joke um but then i thought it was interesting i was reading an interview with Joe Dante where he said that in in the early 90s so coming off the back of Gre- the burbs and gremlins 2 he was offered the flintstones movie and that's the one he- that's the one i was trying to remember yeah well played he turned it down because he said, "Well, I had I got no interest in the Flintstones. You should give that to someone who likes the Flintstones, who's yeah. really passionate about the Flintstones, who will make you a wonderful Flintstones film." I don't care. And I thought, a that was admirable because I'm sure there was plenty of dollar signs attached to that film, mm. and uh, yeah, that was a people may may or may not forget, but the, that Flintstones film was um, it was a big deal and it, it was a big marketing push to it. It was another universal picture. Yeah, it was huge, So he'd have been coming it? off the back of that. Yeah, and it was huge. So um, he obviously would have been offered that off the back of the Burbs and that because it's still universal. And um, I guess he ended up with Matinee instead, but which is more, more for him. But I can't mm. imagine, if you ask me this, I can't imagine what he would have done with the Flintstones because the, the Flintstones isn't a particularly great, great, great film. But... How do you subvert that? You know, it, it, they yeah. played it. They played it straight. You know, it, it, it was an adaptation of of the sixties show, and I can't imagine what Joe Dante would have done with <laughs> would have done with that. You've made me realise that there was the satirical streak throughout Dante's work. The hard, almost vindictive, but enjoyably vindictive edge is also in the Adams Family's pictures, especially the second one, Adams Family Values. It's mm, it might mm. only be Barry Sonnenfeld who can do that as well as Dante. Do you remember it? Uh, you've seen, I presume you've seen Adam's Family Values a hundred times. Yes, I certainly have. Yeah. All the shit at the summer camp with Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski trying to put on the play the weirdo kids, <laughs> you know, the disabled kids, the Adam's kids and the Jew kids take over and wreak havoc. That's superb. Yeah. That's like a Joe Dante film. And then at the very end where um, David Krumholtz is over the grave and he says, he's talking of jo- Joni Cusack's character and says... Uh, um, she was sick, and Christina Ricci says she wasn't sick. She was sloppy. If I wanted to kill my husband, I'd know what to do. I'd scare him to death. And then the film ends with a hand rising from the grave to grab Krumholtz, and it just goes da na na na, and there you go. He's dead. Yeah. He's fucking dead as well. There was yeah. yeah I, I I want that to come back. Um, you know, uh, we we restate this most issues. We don't think that modern films are bad. There are almost as many great films right now as there were at any point in cinema history, apart from maybe a period in the 70s where American cinema was intellectual and sophisticated enough that it was making an unusual amount of fantastic films. But a hard edge has been lost 
at the same time as a satirical edge seems to have been lost. And that's something that... Did you get to see Sorry to Bother You yet? No, no, I didn't, no. Sorry to Bother You has some of that. Sorry to Bother You goes as far as it needs to. And further, it it's, does enough to shock an audience and has that kind of for the pure fuck-offness of it all attitude. Uh, that's one, mm. one of the things I really liked about it. It goes there. So well done, Boots Riley, for that one. Oh, I'll um, check it out then. Yeah, yeah I'll keep, check it out. You've got to keep alive this spirit of Dante, this spirit of build a house only to knock it down, set everything up so that we can pull it to pieces. This weekend, I think we're going to see The Kid Who Would Be King, the, um, oh, yeah, the Joe Cornish, Cornish picture. Yeah. So we're going to check that out because it, it's gotten worryingly to like the whole it's only on at lunch times for this week. Oh. So uh, that, that might go. So, yeah, it's going to have to be a Sunday afternoon, Sunday lunch uh, quick job to get in there and, and, and check that out. So, mm. yeah, okay. I'm sure that the casting agents were rushing for that one because the pedigree is if you're in a Joe Cornish picture, you get to be the co-lead in the next Star Wars. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't That's look the like this one set the, set the box office on fire, unfortunately. No, I'm I think looking that, forward to checking out. I think Attack the Block was misunderstood. I can't recall what business it did, but its cultural penetration, especially in America, was limited. Again, it's just heads like Danny McBride and smart people like J.J. Abrams, I think, who who know Adam and Joe, who know Spaced, who know Partridge, mm. and then you, you see those people popping up in stuff. Um, well done for going to see that, then. Let's bring mm. it home with Joe Dante, then. What are your uh, what scenes would you like to draw our attention to or particular performances from any of those pictures? I love Corey Feldman in The Burbs. He was my idol when I was a kid. He's in, he's in Gremlins, not much of a role, but in Goonies... And in The Burbs, I thought he was the coolest guy. It's a really good role that he has in The Burbs. Even if it is just... You can imagine that he's essentially hanging out on set most of the time, living mm. the role like Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. Mm. Oh, yeah, I like Corey in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's great in that film. And uh, he's uh, so, so, he d- disappears from it at some point. So that is the odd thing about The Burbs. Some of the characters seem to disappear... Uh, when they're not needed, when nothing needs to be explained to them for a little bit. But he does get that wonderful moment at the end of the film, doesn't he? Where, yeah. um, like you say, Tom Hanks says, look after it for, look after the, the, the street for me while I'm gone. And he, he just turns the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says, I love this street, you know, and, and, yeah. and, uh, and that's a wonderful moment. But for me, I've already touched upon it. My, my favourite, I think the most powerful moment in any Joe Dante picture is the closing scene of Matinee. And I love that he um, went the extra mile, paid the extra money, to get that scene shot so after the madcap antics of these kids in in suburbia watching this b-movie picture and, and all of the insanity that's ensued um a- alongside uh, in the jungle the lion sleeps tonight we have we have the helicopters come over the kids are looking mm. up at them it's a triumphant end but we know that they're going to be dropped into into vietnam a few short years to come so that that's definitely the most the most important moment for me but also Gre- gremlins too the fact that it opens with a, a chuck jones animated um looney tunes animation is it w- was phenomenal to me I me- as a kid growing up watching that the fact it opened with a looney tunes cartoon was utterly mad um i've got to put this to you erie indiana oh my word yeah we have mentioned exactly. it we, we, i haven't uh, mentioned it once We've got to give that a little bit of time because that, again, I've talked a little bit about the times when Joe Dante has done things that 
as a child I didn't know filmmakers could do. I, it wasn't until I saw them in Joe Dante pictures that I realised filmmakers could say to the audience, this is a film. And there's a fantastic episode of Eerie Indiana towards the end of its original run in which Omri Katz's character, Marshall Teller, that wakes up to find that his family are calling him Omri and that mm. he's on the set of Eerie Indiana being directed by Joe Dante. I didn't know what to do with that. Mm. And at the, at the end of that episode, it uh, transpires that it's all a plot by the grey-haired kid, Dash X. Mm. And a- again, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old, my mind was open to the possibilities of metatextualism and, and postmodernism within mm. television, within cinema. But aside from that, and that was mind-blowing, but aside from that, Ear Indiana was an, an incredible achievement, one which set me on a path of relentless questioning. Now, it can go too far, you know, because you might have had a phase. And I think, again, blokes like to have projects, as I've said. And most blokes, I think, will go through a period in their teen years where they're saying, like, well, you know the moon landing's fake, don't you? Don't believe what they believe. I know. <laughs> and it's the this, it's this, first time I saw JFK, I was wrapped and saw it, I think, immediately watched it again. Then a week later, I watched it with the commentary was learning everything I could about it. And then it, you, have to, you have to get out of that phase and realise it is what Oliver Stone says it is. It's uh, an alternative to the Warren Commission. It isn't necessarily true. There are half-truths within it. There are not necessarily intentional lies. But don't mm. go too far down the conspiracy angle. But as a kid, you have to get into it. You have to be open to conspiracy theories and you have to be open to questioning and subversion just so you can be someone who, when the government, you know, in, in real life, when the government tells you something, you can say, mm, well, that's clearly bullshit. Or when they say, um, when, for instance, our, our current bet noir is knife crime. Mm. And when they say, we'll put more police on the streets, and you've got to be able to say, well, number one, stop and search may not be that effective. But number two, come on, inequality is what we really need to deal with. These kids aren't stabbing each other because there aren't enough police around. They're stabbing each other because there's nothing else to do. They're in a nihilistic environment. They're full of pain. The only way they know how to alleviate that pain is to inflict that pain upon others. So don't come at me with police numbers because that is not the whole problem. And I think I honestly think that it's watching stuff like Ear Indiana and getting into Joe Dante at the right age. What do you think? I think it gets you off on that line of inquisition of trying to find an understanding behind the one with which you're presented. Yeah, I mean, Ear Indiana, for anyone who's not aware, early 90s kids TV show... Only 19 episodes. Joe Dante was connected, directed a lot of episodes, like you say, cameoed in one as well. Um, directed the, 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 the opening two episodes, so he was there certainly from the inception. Foreverware is the first episode, and that's one mm. of my favourites. Again, deals with suburbia. The whole thing is set on a suburban street. As we know from the opening credits, the main character, uh, played, um, played by Emery Katz, believes that Eerie Indiana is the centre of weirdness for the whole universe. And uh, to me, this was the era of Goosebumps books and, and that kind of thing. I, I, would, I, I remember I used to read Goosebumps books as a kid. It, it predated I, that, though. It did predate it. It, it did predate it. Yeah. You're right. And um, I was picking up on it on the 
Fox Kids, I think, watching that on my granddad's telly because he had Sky before we did. Like I've said before, the old dish before it was Sky Digital, the, the huge dish which took up half your garden. I'm going to interject uh, just for a moment because it took me weeks to remember. You might recall that when you told us about that at Christmas, you said that your grandfather had essentially a self-generated handbook catalogue of all the channels... It wasn't self-generated. It was the only. It was what Sky provided you with, but it it right. had no branding or anything. It was printed. Um, I think you could make. I think there maybe was a column you could you could write in with a pencil if you had a shortcut to a channel or something. But so, anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, when you told us that, I thought, why on earth has he got that beside him? And then I remembered, oh shit, yeah, there wasn't an on-screen program guide. I'd forgotten. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah. That I'd forgotten about the EPG and how. Well, yeah, when we got cable in November 97, there wasn't an EPG. You just had to know that 01 was Sky 1, 04 was Sky Living, 07 was Bravo, 10 was TCM or TNT. I forget which one. Yeah. 14 was Sky Movie, uh, Sky Movies Premiere. It all came flooding back to me, but it took me weeks. Um, sorry, yeah, so let's... It was so, so exotic. You... It was so exotic. Yeah. Really was. But, but at, at that period, I, I remember I was... I was probably catching it on reruns on Fox Kids by that point, uh, like the early 90s. But I, I was getting into Goosebumps a bit later. But, but I always thought that Eerie Indiana was like the thinking man's Goosebumps. Because the Goosebumps books, they later turned that into a TV show. And uh, like an anthology show, which, which, which was an adaptation of each, each book. And uh, each episode was an adaptation of each book. And there was Night of the Living Dummy and uh, th- there was the, the the Curse of the Mummy's Tomb or whatever. A lot of allusions to old films and that kind of thing. But it was very weak. It was only in like, mm. theme only. Whereas with Eerie Indiana, there were quite direct references to to old 50s, 60s genre films. And um, and and the, some of the Joe Dante episodes, like I said, the first one, Foreverware, which is set in um, basically the lead character's mother, um, host a Tupperware party, which is called Foreverware, and there's, there's these plastic containers that can keep anything fresh. Um, and then he realizes that 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 people are preserving themselves in these containers, yeah. and it's, it's it's so mad and it and really out there. It's uh, and like you say, it kind of culminates in that meta episode where uh, it's they realise that the show they're in is is a show and that yeah. that's utterly mad. So yeah, the fact he was doing that, he has done TV from time to time. Ear Indiana's a wonderful one though. And uh, in fact, I was reading an interview with him where uh, I think someone had actually said, uh, hey, Stranger Things is like the, a bunch of kids in suburbia fighting evil. That's trading on 80s nostalgia, 90s nostalgia. That's... Do you feel like it's very similar to your your show Eerie Indiana that you worked on uh, with others? And he says, "Oh, I'm sure the I'm sure the checks in the post, you know." <laughs> and and that, that's that's it, you know. I think people. I mean, I guess he made a living they're, out they're of riff- always magnanimous, aren't they? I find they 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 usually when creative people are told point blank, there are guys out there biting your shit right now. They usually either say, "Oh, that's very nice of them," or they say, "Well, I I, I suppose there was a lot of influences, but." I'm just happy to be one of them, you know. That's where really, it. what they should say is exactly as he said. Yeah, where's my fucking residuals? Because the duffers are just copying from Stephen King, John Carpenter, Spielberg, and me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love uh, it. You've reminded me of some of the um, some of the little touches in Erie, Indiana, and it it speaks to it speaks to 
a reality when we were children, which I, again, I hope that children can have these days, where nothing could be researched. So there's an Eerie Indiana episode which includes My Sharona by The Knack. That's it, and I yeah. had I had no way, no real way of knowing whether that was a real track or not. Now, oh, you just I, thought it was from the TV show? I thought it might be. It wasn't until a couple of years later when it featured in Reality Bites and was re-released that I knew for sure it was a real song. Because even asking my dad, if I, I, I'm pretty sure I asked him at some point, but it's a, you get a sort of a, a vague response of, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I know that. Because mm. oh, I'm not sure if he knew or not. And to be honest, I'm, you know, it's 1991 or 1992. I'm asking my dad about something from literally 15 years ago that he may have heard three times. Mm. I think, you know, I think in 20 years time, if people say, do you remember the Guillemots? We'll likely say, uh, let's just say yes. And I, and, mm. but no follow up questions, please. But mm. yeah, there was that, there was that episode where you, you're in, something's introduced and you just don't know whether it's, whether it is actually real or not. There's a great episode. I, I can't remember too much about it other than Danielle Harris from the Halloween films is in it as a girl that needs a heart transplant. Uh, I think it's called heart on a chain. And then uh, the the episode closes in a cemetery and then moves to a crane shot out of the cemetery and you see the Grim Reaper mm. w- without drawing attention to it. And again, little moments like that. It's chilling in an M.R. James kind of way, unnerving, but somehow enjoyable, reassuring, romantic. Somewhat safe as well. I loved Eerie Indiana and the, the stunt casting of Archie Hahn was in it for a bit and then John Astin, Gomez Adams comes into it. There was callbacks to The Howling. Henry Gibson, I think Henry Gibson turns up in an episode. No, we might have to check that. But, um, yeah, so to have, when I was young, to be getting into Joe Dante, but then to have something new to go alongside Gremlins mm. and the Burbs in Inner Space true. Yeah. was an absolute delight. And uh, I, I have got it on DVD, and I, that was one of our first bonding experiences, actually, uh, when I was first going around to your house and hanging out when when I was at university. Um, I think I said, oh, I've got Eerie Indiana on DVD. Bring it round. We're going to put it on right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I distinctly remember that, actually. I think Reality Takes a Holiday is the first one we watched. I want the youth to rediscover him. Or, or rather, I want the youth to discover him and I want our listeners to rediscover so, Joe Dante. So shall we Shall we wrap up with with that then, in terms of why do you think um, no one's giving him... And to that, also Carpenter and, and, and the like, any money. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Spielberg is the, is, is the more conventional uh, director. He had um, Dante under his wing in the 80s. Spielberg's not throwing him any pictures anymore. The last one he did was the DreamWorks. Uh, the first big film for DreamWorks was Small Soldiers. Obviously, that didn't um, make as much money as they were hoping. Um, I know that, that initially the brief was to do like a teenage picture. So it's a bit violent, a bit gremlins. And you you feel in Small Soldiers, he's pulling some punches. He, he He's mm. holding back. And uh, he says at the end, they cut out a lot of explosions and a lot of violence to make it... <laughs> suddenly the brief at the end turned into, oh, make it a family film. I even picked up on that at the time, that it wasn't quite gremlins, even though it it's essentially gremlins 3. My reality has never been that I watched family films with my family. I didn't watch Disney's The Love Bug or The Ugly Dashant with my family or Beethoven the films we watched that the films that you watch as a family are films that are slightly too advanced for the kids in the family that's how it should be as I said I remember watching Airplane with my mother and having a wonderful time we watched that at 11 at night over a Christmas one time 
And mm. I, I did the same with Gremlins with my mum as well. That's what a family film, by its very definition, is likely to be too staid and boring for the adults and mm. likely not anarchic enough for those kids that have to... Anybody over the age of eight or so. It's, mm. I've never really been into Disney, and it's one of the reasons why. Because I had Dante and Hughes and Carpenter and Landis growing up. Mm. And, yeah, like, there are scenes in some of those pictures that have female boobies and maybe they say fuck a little bit and there might be a joint or two but it's simple enough to well the, the as you've said before the the truth of the matter is that if you're too young to understand that stuff you don't know what the fuck's happening yeah yeah so you, you can shield the eye shield the kids eyes if you don't want them to see a woman's naked breasts although who would uh, you know who would deny that delight to their child but <laughs> additionally if Eddie Murphy's smoking a blunt in um a cubicle when the Duke brothers come in, you know, you're seven years old, you think, oh, he's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. But I, I think the attitude of parents now would be for them to let's let's pause the film and have a conversation about the merits of marijuana legislation. Fuck yeah. it. It's kids. They don't know. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You know, leave it alone. I agree. So, yeah, I agree. So these are the family films I grew up on. Stuff that stuff like Gremlins, which is just too far. And it's, it's, it's uh, maybe that's part of it. It's dangerous. But if you're watching it with a parent, you don't have to feel scared. You don't have to feel as endangered or worried because you've someone there to give you context. If if necessary, they can say, well, that was a bit tough, but it is only a film. You know, there aren't mm. real gremlins. Yeah, exactly. Um, if I want to scare a kid, I just put on John Oliver or Newsnight or something. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then we then we realise that we've all got about five years to live. But, <laughs> yeah. but um, so... That Small Soldiers was the last one that Spielberg, the last bone Spielberg threw to him. Looney Tunes back in action, he has described as the longest, longest year and a half of his life. Mm. Since then, he he hasn't been making these 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 studio, certainly studio pictures. There's been a couple of independent films, and he's talked at length about how difficult it is to get funding for this stuff. You've got about, he says, you've got to have your fingers in a lot of pies now. You need to have about f- not just one project on the boil. You've got to have five or six scripts at any one time. He's been trying to make his Roger Corman biopic for the last 15 years. Yeah. And um, it's just... Oh, this is the man with kaleidoscope eyes. That's yeah. it, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if people, if Hollywood has stopped giving him money or if he's just turned things down a bit like the Flintstones and said, no, you know what? I don't want any part of that anymore. The last couple I did were just too much and I don't want to have to deal with it. I'd um, like to think it was essentially that because uh, I, I used to have on my wall a quote from John Sayles and it ran something like, with regard to Hollywood they're not interested in what I'm doing and I'm not interested in what they're doing. Mm. And as you know, and as our listeners may know, because we chat about it a little bit, during the 80s and 90s, John Sales was the go-to script doctor. In fact, he worked so much on Apollo 13 that I think I think it's the case that eventually he tried to litigate for credit but didn't get it because it. you need to... I think the barrier is astonishingly high. It's more than 30%. You have to mm. prove you've written more than 30% of the screenplay, which is quite tough especially if, like John Sayles, and indeed on, on the Joe Dante pictures, especially if you're retained as both a script doctor and as an actor to be on set, to feed lines, to um, edit as you go, uh, to mm. troubleshoot, I suppose, on, on an hour-to-hour basis. Yeah. And I'd like to think that with Dante, if we're honest, he had a good 15-year run from Piranha up to Matinee. Mm. And we shouldn't... We'll talk about this another time, but 
Runaway Daughters is fun, and the Second Civil War is a, a good satire, very good late nineties satire. Yeah, about I haven't the seen that. They're, they're the are they the HBO like straight to uh, yeah, film yeah, TV movies? Um, I haven't I seen got, them. I, I only watched it last year. I picked it up on Laserdisc a few months ago, and it's an a very enjoyable and acidic, mordant satire of the developing 24-hour news environment at the end of the 90s and how it covers um, a diplomatic incident surrounding states' rights within America and then America turns in on itself. We'll watch it together at some point. The way I look at it is that Dante had his 15 years and some people don't get that long. You know, he had eight or nine pictures Mm. and... He got longer than Landis, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. And as we said, he had only really two hits, successfully parlayed only two hits into a span of 15 years and maybe nine pictures, said a lot of what he wanted to say. And now I hope that he's content just raking in a bit of money doing, like, for instance, directing episodes of Hawaii Five-0. And he's clearly moved back into... uh, Over the last three or four years, it's clear that he's intentionally doing more television after a fallow period where mm. like around the time of the whole he i think it's evident he wasn't getting work now mm. i think he's succeeded to directing episodic television and it's probably pretty fun to do that in hawaii on location mm. but um I, I have to be equanimical and say uh we got him when we needed him and we do mm. need him again but maybe maybe his role now has to be as an inspiration to a new a new set of filmmakers, people with that satirical bite, like Boots Riley. Mm. Maybe. Because, you know, these these are old directors as well. And as concerns like Carpenter, for instance, he jacked it in a number of years ago, and the, the music he's making is very compelling. And I think he's enjoying... I've seen him live. I think he's enjoying being something of a rock star. When he goes to... When he plays live, when he's in front of an audience of 2,000, 3,000 people performing with Cody Carpenter, his kid, and their band... I think he must think, wow, this is fantastic. I get to be a touring musician in my 70s and these, oh, everyone here loves me. I'm like mm. kiss to them. I'm like cheap trick to them. Mm. And I, that's an, a, a nice transition into a different career because Hollywood was a tough place for these subversives in the 70s and 80s. And now when the desire is, I was thinking about this, when the desire is for a three out of five review because that means that's a positive on Rotten Tomatoes, that's not the place for John Carpenter or Joe Dante or John Landis yeah. or Walter Hill, yeah. you know, yeah. where, when you do you, what you're looking to make is something that's just about good enough to get a three out of five, which must means it has to be immediately commercial. No slow boil. It can't be something that people return to in two years and say, fuck, that was really good. Yeah. It has yeah. to be immediately judged. It's all, as, about, it's all about the opening weekend. Yeah. And you could tell us it's algorithms when it comes to Netflix and streaming, it's algorithms and yeah. Well, that's it as well. Maybe, um, maybe he, Netflix need to throw him a few quid to do some Netflix things. Maybe he would um, be averse to that, though, given the uh, given the fact, you know, his his love of, of film as a medium. Anyway, maybe he yeah. wouldn't want to be making some Netflix films. But I don't know. It feels like that could be a way to go. When I, when I was watching the whole, although it was filmed as a three D picture, in fact, it was filmed as a three D picture just around the time Avatar was about to be this big deal. And and it's difficult to remember now, but Avatar was this thing that was the new kind of 3D. And he, he convinced the production company to do The Hole, which was 2008, 2009, as a 3D film. And of course, because Avatar was then a huge hit, it, it 
everyone was post converting their 2D films that were, were about to be released into 3D really hurriedly. And Clash of the Titans, I think, was the first one, the first major one I remember that did that. And a lot, I remember a lot of the reviews saying, this is shoddy. It's been done too quickly. They obviously filmed it in 2D and they've just tried to make it 3D at the last minute. The problem was that when there was this huge influx in all the multiplexes suddenly of these 3D films, that that novelty thing that he had, that, that um, USP, if you like, for the whole was gone. And mm. that then for a year, it was sitting on the shelf waiting to be released. And then after a year, no one wanted to release it because it was it was a year old. So who wanted to book it? No one wanted to book it. So th- that's where that went wrong. But even though he obviously definitely made that for 3D, and he, th- he even said at the time, you know, I've never actually seen it in 2D. I've never seen the 2D cut. Um, apart from when I was editing it. When I was editing it, I, I saw it in 2D. But apart from that... No, I've only ever seen this with audiences in 3D at, at film festivals or whatever. And and they get a kick out of it. But watching it on DVD in the 2D version, part of it's because the um, it didn't necessarily feel... Because it's an indie picture, it didn't feel like a big studio cinematic production value. But that could have been a, a Netflix thing. It could have done really well. Who, who knows? M- maybe he would just have an aversion to, to doing something straight to TV uh, like that for, for Netflix. But... But who knows? I, all I know, like you say, maybe he, maybe we need him now to, to be that inspiration, hopefully. I said, let's do the burbs, and you up the ante and you committed wonderfully picking up all the pictures and watching all of them the thing about Dante is it's a great body of work like I love Landis but I'll readily accept that Spies Like Us isn't much cop neither is Three Amigos Into the Night is a Curate's Egg he may only have five or six really good films yeah I'd say that maybe fewer than that but Dante the the quality doesn't drop at all audiences move away from him and they come back to him but these are all four out of five pictures they are. With, a, with a couple of exceptions, but like even Explorers, which I've seen once and didn't like, and you are unfamiliar with, but I know several people who really like Explorers, who really understand it. It's got a cult um, following, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and partly because of the Jerry Goldsmith score, partly because it's River Phoenix and Ethan Hawke. Did you but know that? Yeah, the, it's well the, You know the reason why Amblin had that as well, don't you? So Amblin bought the film rights to that. I think it was a novel, wasn't it, originally? Uh, or a co- or something. It was an original. It, it was an IP before it was a film, and I'm sure that I'm right in saying that Amblin bought it because it had a scene of kids flying on bikes, and they wanted to have that for ET. <laughs> I'm sure I'm right. In- we need to fact check that, but wow. I'm sure I'm right in saying that. And then it's so it's all it, that's almost literally like a cast off, isn't it? Because he's done yeah. ET, and then he's given him Gremlins, and then he's like, oh. We've just we've we've literally got this on the shelf because I wanted to have a bike flying scene in another film. Why don't you just yeah. j- just make it? But anyway, that that it's been wonderful. And you were talking about his body of work. You're right. I do think that they're all solid films, and you don't get to say this about everyone. I think if you were to ask, what is Joe Dante's great American novel? You know, it's it's there. It's it's that body of work, and it it is a trip around the American psyche. It's a trip through the last 50, 60 years of American history. 
and mm. it's a trip into the last 50, 60 years of American pop culture. And um, Yeah, the nuclear age, the television age, it all seems to start around 1955, that, I think it's the Eisenhower administration. Mm. Yeah, before Kennedy, um, around the time that Mad Men starts. Yeah, yeah. to Beaver, the ascent of the sitcoms, while at the same time the threat of nuclear Armageddon mm. hangs over the entire globe. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it, it moves through that, and then, but with the sensibilities of a man who's lived through the counterculture of the sixties, and the cynicism and counterculture of the seventies is, is is now ready to apply those learned principles to his filmmaking. Yeah, I, I, he's a wonderful filmmaker, and. Um, it was a great weekend to go from beginning to end and, and pretty much watch all of his theatrically released films. And it was very special to do that with my wife, who I think fell in love with a lot of them. 25 years on in our relationship, I was right. That feels good. It feels good to have <laughs> picked him out early on. But, but no, there are, you know, there are... It's a constant pop culture conversation and I won't go too far into it. It's heartening and it's enjoyable to go back to stuff that you like when you were eight nine ten years old and realize oh shit this is still dope as hell yeah these guys yeah. were right we, these yeah. guys were right and we were we were early adopters yeah i know exactly what you mean yeah I, there's been bands like that that i was picking out at um you know i bought their first couple records after they'd long since split up or whatever and then you yeah. go but you go back to them and then then you realize this stuff's right on it's great and and whatever they're doing currently is 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 right on yeah really good really good example so that was our love letter our own ode to mr joe dante and what a special body of work that is and uh, from trying to talk about the burbs 30th anniversary uh, and and going into like all all of the joe dante pictures that was great but we gotta say tell you what in in the show notes we'll put um a few links to a couple of films you, you could be checking out immediately i'm sure anyone listening here has seen the likes of the gremlins probably even uh the burbs but like i say some of the lesser known ones like like matinee are great and films like inner space uh, whether you've seen them uh, never seen them at all or, or even seen them 15 20 years ago they're definitely worth a revisit even piranha my god you can pick that up for 50 pence at your local cex so go even go amazon women on the moon really. yeah the landers picture amazon women on <laughs> yeah. the moon which they're is... all involved that's it's fun it's fun in fact joe dante directs my favorite segment in that which is the um like the celebrity roast, but when you're dead at your funeral, and that, <laughs> yeah. that does seem to—that's yeah. kind of like how I'd want my funeral to be. I think, yeah. just everyone <laughs> stepping up and roasting me whilst I was in the coffin. Thanks very much for listening. We have been one sensational shop, and this has been the Electronic Labyrinth. You can get in touch with the show. Do let us know what your favourite Joe Dante pictures are, favourite moments. Uh, uh, you can get in touch on Twitter that's at One Sensational you can get in touch on Facebook if you just search One Sensational Shot but of course one of the best places to go is the website onesensationalshot.com you can also buy from us on eBay we've got some uh, selected memorabilia there that helped to fund the website that's at One Sensational Shop the link's on the website too and please do leave us a review. It really does help. So if you're listening on, on your iTunes app, do just scroll down to the bottom. You can leave us a few stars. You can leave us a few lines. You can do the same on Spotify. But wherever you're listening on Stitcher, Spotify, uh, iTunes, do do leave us a few lines of review. So thanks very much for listening, guys. In the meantime, this is Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton at One Sensational Shop signing off.
nuclear warhead? What are you talking about? God. Is that too much? By Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard you say that before. <laughs>